不嬲，我都中意读啊读往，想点啊点，都唔知几 f 我好清楚知道，我已经中意咗呢个神鬼妹。我在死，仲食烟？请问谁是苏玲家？Welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. I'm John, and with me, as always, my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing? I'm okay, John. How are you?、Uh, I'm pretty good as well. So today we'll continue our coverage of '90s Asian cinema,、uh, or rather, we'll, fin- we'll finish our coverage of '90s Asian cinema with the Hong Kong film '1997 Hong Kong film Made in Hong Kong, directed by Fru Chan.、Uh, and just as I mentioned. We've decided to make this our final episode of season two. It's uh, it's uh, as you've as I'm sure the listeners have noticed the the our episodes are getting a little bit more far apart than we like to. Be that's because we're both busy with with various other、uh, stuff. So we decided to make this the tenth episode of se- the ten you know main episode of season two, the final episode of season two, and then、uh, probably sometime in twenty in early twenty twenty two. We will come up with season three. That doesn't mean we will won't have any episodes in the in between. We'll obviously we'll almost certainly do a Christmas special just like last year, and、uh, we'll you know we'll probably have a few other specials depending on you know what comes up. If there's any festivals that we'd like to cover or anything else, we'll certainly not completely disappear until we come back with a season three. But as far as season two goes, and that is the coverage of '90s Asian cinema,、uh, this is the final episode, and we'll have some thoughts of that for, about you know our our season thus far、uh, at the end of the episode. But one thing that, and of course, we're it's been four weeks since our last recording, and even the previous episode was four weeks apart.、Uh, but we passed our yearly, our first year anniversary, Jason. I don't know if you noticed that.、Uh, no, I totally lost track. And、me too. I think it was shortly before the ghost in after the ghost in the shell episode. Ah,、uh, right. I think that was just before、uh, our first year anniversary, and then、uh, when we did the next episode,、uh, which was、um, I'm blanking here for a second.、Uh, Whispering corridors, Memento Mori. Yes,、uh, that was、uh, after our first year anniversary. So that would have been an ideal time to bring it up, but、uh, we didn't. Uh, that's okay. So、uh, before we get into our discussion, we'll do our usual segment of、uh, what you've been watching or reading or consuming since last we spoke. So why don't you start, Jason? Well, as you mentioned, it's been four weeks, and、um, I've consumed quite a lot in terms of、uh, festival work.、Um, I've been watching screeners uh, for. Uh, One festival, I'm about to watch screeners for another festival. But in terms of、um, what、uh, I've been watching on Amazon, 
uh, or ju- what I've been watching for entertainment purposes, um, Voyeurs uh, and The Vault, two Amazon movies that were released over the summer. Um, and I finally got around to finishing Samurai Champloo, uh, which is the Shinichiro Watanabe series. Is that your first time watching the series? Yeah, I got a couple of episodes into it when it was first released, and I never really gelled with the series. Um, so it was all on Amazon Prime, and it's the American dub. So I thought I'll just download the entire thing onto uh, my Fire tablets and watch it. And you said you finished it, or are you still in the in the throes of it? I've finished watching all 26 episodes. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's an episode in the middle with zombies that I just never made sense. Yeah, it's uh, you have different writers and directors on board, and um, they each get to try something different. Samurai Shampoo is like a hip-hop remix of classic uh, Shambro movie stories and um, archetypes. And uh, the zombie one just comes straight out of left field. But soon after that, when you've got a baseball one, uh, which plays on America's sort of uh, interactions with Japan, and it's quite amusing. Yes, yes. It's a, it's a good series. I don't know that I would place it higher than uh, Cowboy Bebop, which is, I think, the same team, or at least the same director. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's also the same writers, maybe. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure on that. It's definitely um, Shinichiro Watanabe. Yeah, I don't know that I would pay. I would put Shampoo higher than Cowboy Bebop. Cowboy Bebop is one of my favorites, but it's it's pretty it's a pretty unique and entertaining series, nevertheless. Yeah, it's it's got great action scenes, um, and the two Ronin who are accompanying uh, the lead female character are a lot of fun to accompany. Mm. Uh, in terms of uh, Watanabe's work, I would put Cowboy Bebop at the top, Space Dandy second. Samurai Shampoo third, and I haven't watched this latest I don't series. think I've seen S- Space Dandy. Oh, right. So, essentially, just like Samurai Shampoo, Shinichiro Watanabe is like the general director, and he brings in other writers and directors to create their own sort of stories and bring their own style into the show. Only he allows them more creative freedom. And um, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but uh, each episode just goes in completely different directions, and it makes sense at the end why it goes in completely different directions. Like in some episodes, some of the characters die, and then in the next episode they come back. And it's a lot of fun. It's uh, I think you might like it because it plays on all sorts of sci-fi tropes, but it also has very poignant and uh, funny stories. Yeah, I have to I have to check out uh, to see where. No, I, this definitely looks. It looks like another sort of mix where uh, he seems to, to like these um, you know un- unconventional uh, mixing of genres like uh, Cowboy Bo- Bebop was Space Cowboys and uh, Samurai Champloo was Hip Hop Samurai and this one looks also like it's it's a space uh, but there is uh, just just from the art it looks like there is some unconventional takes or unconventional mixing with space and other genres. Yeah, it's a bunch of clowns who are playing at being alien bounty hunters, and yeah. Um, and yeah, each episode takes on a different uh, like genre, like horror. So you got a zombie episode in the first season, <laughs> and I think it's much more, um, it's much better execution than what you see in um, Samurai Champloo. I see. Okay, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. I have to see where it's available and uh, and watch it. Uh, yeah. And, uh, moving on from anime, I watched, uh, La Haine in preparation for the, this podcast. And this was, uh, 
a first time watch for me. I'd seen it a bit of it in French class at high school, um, but I'd never really um, watched it uh, in the intervening time period between then and now. And I was really blown away by it. Um, and I started playing Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together. Uh, this is a second time playthrough. And um, because we're approaching Halloween, I've started watching horror movies, like one a day. So um, recently I've watched Ghost House, um, The House of Witchcraft, The House of Clocks, and um, The Sweet House of Horrors. So these um. are made-for-TV made movies um, directed by... Um, I'm going to get the name wrong. Uh, Umberto Lenzi and um, the other ones, uh, Ghost House is by Umberto Lenzi and the other ones are by Lucio Fulci, who's done like um, The Beyond and um, uh, uh, The House by the Cemetery, City of the Damned. Uh, yeah. So I've been, like every morning I wake up, I put on a cheap Italian horror movie and watch it before going to work. I see. I haven't quite yet started my, my homage to Halloween, but I should. Yeah, if uh, I don't know if you'd be impressed by any of these films. Uh, certainly, the House of Witchcraft and the House of Clocks have some good cinematography. Um, stories of paper thin, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I I have been meaning to watch the Christopher Lee Dracula. I haven't seen that one, uh, but it's never it's never available on any services that I subscribe to, but I think I, I recently got HBO and I think it is available on HBO. So I'm planning to watch that at some point uh, this month. I think it's when I watched as a kid because it's Hammer Horror and it's British. It so yes, it's the type yes. of thing that would be put on TV. I've never seen it. It's like has a, this l almost legendary reputation, and uh, but I haven't seen it. So so I, I it, like it's been on my list forever just, just for only because uh, mostly as a tick to check, to, as a box to tick off, but to check off, but. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, I think it's appropriate to do it now on Halloween and because it's finally available to me. Absolutely. Do you have, uh, plans to watch anything else? Not, not as far as horror movies. No, that's the only one, but I'm sure I'll find stuff to watch for, for Halloween. It's, it's not going to be a shortage of it. I guarantee that. So anything else that you want to add to the list? Uh, that's about it really. Um, between uh, horror films and tactics ogre and festival films. <laughs> I'm going to be quite busy. All right. All right. So as far as my own uh, viewing experience or viewing uh, history for the last four weeks, I watched, I finally watched Training Day. I had not seen it. Oh, I haven't seen that. Denzel Washington and... Um, Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke. It was pretty good. I, I did not expect it to like it as much as I did. Of course, it's... You know, the movie has flaws, but I, I thought I had, without watching it, as I often do, I had dismissed it as something that I probably am not going to like. And I was pleasantly surprised, especially by Denzel Washington's performance and just the story in general. I, I thought it was good. So I, I recommend it. Yeah. I watched, or rather I rewatched uh, Hunt for the Wilders People by uh, Taika Waititi. Okay. And I liked it more now than the first time I watched it. I, I think I had a relatively low opinion of that film. I liked uh, Waititi's first or previous film, What We Do in the Shadows, and I still love that film. But, uh, but Hunt for the Wilderness Peoples, I sort of thought he was a bit, a bit of far more conventional or more Hollywood. But on a second rewatch, I think I enjoyed it a little bit more, and I think I saw, I saw more beneath the surface of that film that I, I made me appreciate it a bit more. I still don't think it's as good as his previous film, and I, but it's still better than, you know, 
the Hollywood stuff that that director has done. Yeah. I saw, and then this were uh, this was because we, I was at a gathering with people, and that's what they watched. But I saw Knives Out by director Ryan Johnson and starring uh, what's his name, the James Bond guy, Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. Have you seen that don't, one? No, don't spoil it. I want to watch it. <laughs> okay, it's. I mean, it's 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 all right. Uh, I saw a World War II movie with star Nicolas Cage called Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Oh dear. It's yes, it's he has an Italian accent in that one, and I think that says it all. Yeah. <laughs> Nicholas Cage is a good actor, depending upon the director he's teamed up with. Yeah, this was it's it's not a horrible film, but it is uh, Nicholas Cage feels a little bit ridiculous in that one. But other other than that, it's it's not a terrible film. Yeah, you need to be a really talented director to harness his energy. Yes, exactly. Uh, like a, like a Mandy. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen it. No, I've heard yeah. nothing but good things. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would not go as far as to call it a great film, but I would certainly call it a good film. And I yeah. think because the the director knows how to harness the full caginess of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> he doesn't. Nicolas Cage doesn't hold back in that one, but he's the director knows how to make use of that, and it is a complete gonzo film. You will enter the cage. Yes, I think you would like it more than I do. I'll just I'll just say that like that. It's not a bad film. It's not something that I'm drawn to, but I think you would definitely like it. Yeah, like uh, the one I recommend to people is Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. I've seen that one, yes. That's brilliant. That was an yeah, Oscar-worthy performance. That's uh, Werner Herzog. Exactly. Yeah, the, the one thing I will uh, that's going to hold me back from judging that film is that I have not seen the first Bad Lieutenant with Harvey Keitel and uh, Abel Ferrara. Yeah. Directed by Abel Ferrara. I haven't seen that one, so I, I, um, I'd like to see that one before I sort of like make a decision on where I stand on the Nicolas Cage version. Yeah. So this one, I might have mentioned this last time, I don't remember, because I sort of, I had mostly seen it, but I finished the series Party Down. Ah. And that is a, an HBO series that came out you know, about 10 years ago, only lasted about two seasons, I think. Uh, and it was, it was an interesting series, but uh, I don't know. Didn't didn't leave much much of an impression, yeah, on me. Uh, and I also the for those uh, as of the time of the recording, the Emmys were last week, and uh, a couple of series there drew my attention. One was Ted Lasso. Oh, is that Jason Sudeikis? Yes, and it's about the American football coach that goes to the UK to to coach uh, European football or soccer, as we call it. And it is a <laughs> It won a lot of Emmys, and I I enjoyed the series. I don't know that it deserved all those Emmys that it won. It's sort of um, it's I don't know if you've seen it all. If you've seen any any trailers about it or anything like that, I've seen some clips. Yeah, it's it's about it's a, supposed to be a f- very feel good anti cynicism type of show, and I think part of it is also it's it's Apple. Uh, Apple TV. So I think there's probably some internal politics since Apple TV is very new and is trying to get, you know, very fast uh, rise into this, this world of streaming services. Yeah. So there's, there's probably, I think that might explain some of the Emmys, but I don't know. It's, I think it's, it's I mean, I like, I watched all the episodes that are available so far. The season, the second season almost over. There's one more episode that's going to come out next week or something. And it's, um, it's the sort of the usual stereotype of the optimistic American is 
going to the UK to show all your all you cynical Brits how to live life. And uh, that's uh, that's essentially pretty much sums up the show. The, the, everything about football or soccer in the show is so unrealistic. It, it feels <laughs> as though any no nobody involved with the show has ever seen an actual football ma- match. I, actually, watching sixty minutes of football is boring for viewers in America. Uh, yeah, I mean that's a, that's entirely possible. It feels like it is a show intended for Americans or intended to make Americans feel good. I don't know, even though. Almost the entire cast is British. Only Jason Sudeikis and one other character are American. Yeah. Um, well, actually, no. All the football players are, you know, international. So they are from all over the place. There's a Nigerian there. There's British football players. They're French and whatever. So, but the the non-football cast are all pretty much British. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. It's it's a fun show. I think it's a bit overrated. Uh, and then I also another another sort of uh, Emmy that was mostly nominated. I don't think it won any awards. Was the flight attendant? Oh, that stars uh. the girl from uh, the Big Bang Theory, Kelly Kaylee Coco Coco, something like that. Yeah, that one was a fun one. I, uh, I I mean I've only saw a couple of episodes of that, so I'm not sure where I stand yet. But it was certainly a fun show. It's sort of this murder mystery, but the entire premise of it is that the the person the the main character was too drunk possibly even even drugged uh, we don't know yet and she can't remember what happened and sort of like the entire episode is her trying to find the memory back while also interacting with the various people that were involved in the murder and it's it's a it's mostly like you know structured as a one-hour drama but there is i think a bit of a a comedy in it as well but i thought i thought it was really good it was at least so far i don't know how how it'll progress beyond that Okay, hopefully a good ending. And uh, I think that's that is my media consumption. Uh, we're still calling it that uh, for the last four weeks, or uh, that I remember anyway. I'm I did other stuff that I just did not remember to write down. Uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, uh, and I think that's it for this segment. Next is our new segment, and I did a very bad job keeping track of what was going on in the world of Asian cinema, but I think you did a much better job than I did. did. So why don't you go ahead and give us the news for this episode, Jason? So we've got a number of festivals taking place around the world. Um, In London, we have the London East Asian Film Festival, uh, which runs from the 21st to the 31st of October. And uh, it's got... uh, a number of films that were at the New York Asian Film Festival, uh, including A Balance and Zoki, uh, both of which I've seen and um, I can recommend. And it's also got uh, A Silent Forest as well, which uh, you highly rated. The A Silent Forest. Uh, so I'm, I'm blanking for a little bit from the uh, what the festival that we covered. Taiwan. No, but what was the festival that we covered? Sorry, I'm... Uh, New York Asian Film Festival. New York Asian Film. I was okay. I was blanking on the on the name. Yes, that it was there. I'm sure it's shown in other places, but okay. So it's also showing at the London East Asian Film Festival. That's interesting. Yeah. So uh, this is taking place uh, in cinemas uh, across London at the end of October, and um, so no online portion. So no online portion. No. All right. And taking place right now is the BFI London Film Festival. Again, this is uh, in theatre experience, um, but there are some online portions to it. Um, it's running from the 6th of October to the 17th. And um, 
it's going to expand beyond London. There are going to, um, the BFI have partnered up with various regional cinemas to screen some of the competition films. So in London, you can see, um, two Ryosuke Hamaguchi films, which we've, uh, mentioned multiple times on this podcast. Um, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which, uh, picked up awards at Berlinale earlier this year. And, um, Drive My Car, which has appeared in a number of film festivals around the world. Well, you can't watch Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy outside of London, but you can watch Drive My Car, which will be at select cinemas. Uh, and you've also got, uh, Mamoru Hosoda's latest film, Bell, uh, which is going to get UK distribution via Anime Limited. So this is, this is just a, the London Film Festival, the, it's not an Asian specific festival, but there just happens to be a few Asian films in there, right? Yeah. In the okay. past, it used to be a, a much richer selection of Asian films, but it's being paired down now to the sort of films that already have distribution in the UK, distribution deals in place. Um, and over in North America, there's the Vancouver International Film Festival. Uh, Again, it used to have a really great selection of Asian films. Um, I think both festivals used to um, contract in the likes of Tony Raines, who's an expert uh, Japanese cinema or Asian cinema critic. And also he does subtitles and um, all sorts of other things connected to Asian cinema. hes I don't think he's working for Vancouver anymore. So uh, the lineup is kind of standard fare, like Drive My Car uh, and um, Fortune Favors Lady Nikuko and um, Wife of a Spy. So a number of these have been touring across North America already. And you've also got Spaghetti Code Love, which is at Japan Cuts. And again, this one's uh, in cinemas. So I don't think there's an online portion to this. And uh, starting next week, totally online, uh, region locked to Japan, although there are some events which will be uh, available for audiences worldwide, is the Yamagata International Documentary Film Festival. It's a biannual um, festival and uh, it happens in like the snowy north of the country in the Tohoku region. So when you say biannual, is that twice a year or once every two years? Once every two years. Okay. And this year, due to COVID-19, it's going to be a totally online event, which will be available to everybody across Japan. Some events will be available globally. Nice. And uh, the programs are relatively cheap. Uh, 1,300 yen, which comes to about uh, seven, seven pounds, seven pounds. Yeah, seven pounds. I'm not sure how much that is. About ten dollars, yeah, roughly. I'm. I I don't know what the conversion rate is exactly, but I would guess about ten dollars. So a program, uh, which can be made up of either four or fifteen films, comes to that price. So that's pretty good value for money. And you've got um, like uh, big names in documentary films, such as Frederick Wiseman, uh, rubbing shoulders with new talents from across the world. And uh, yeah, uh, I hope to cover that festival in the coming weeks. So uh, yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned to to Jason's blog to see his coverage of the festival. And also uh, announced earlier today by Third Windows Films is the uh, release of a limited edition set 
are dedicated to Nobuhiko Obayashi's anti-war trilogy, uh, which consists of Casting Blossoms to the Sky, Seven Weeks, and Hanagatami. These are some of the last films that he made. And this is going to be limited to 2,000 copies. It's a Blu-ray digipack with a booklet by the Obayashi expert Adam Garau. And um, I think you can see him interview uh, Obayashi at Japan Cuts uh, on YouTube, on the Japan Cuts website, uh, YouTube channel. And that will be out on December 13th. All right. So, right, so that was our news segment. I'm sure there are more news out there, but that's, uh, that's all we, we could find or, or that came into Jason's attention. So we can jump straight into our main discussions. And like I mentioned in the, in the introduction, the film that we're talking about is the 1997, and yet that, that there's another 1997 film. It seems to be a very seminal year in, in this season. But the 1997 film... Uh, made in Hong Kong, directed by Fru Chan. Not his first film, but I think maybe his second film or something like that. So why don't we start with a plot summary as usual? So why don't you give us a plot summary, Jason? So uh, this is credited as the first independent film to be released in the former British colony since the handover to China in 1997. Uh, made in Hong Kong was uh, possibly Fru Chan's debut film. Before that, he's working as a, as an assistant director, and uh, he made it on a shoestring budget with a crew of five people, non-professional actors, and leftover film stock. The film is a character study narrated by uh, lead character Autumn Moon, played by Sam Lee. He's a high school dropout and a small-time hoodlum who lives in an overcrowded, subsidized housing project with his mother. Moon is an aimless youth whose days are spent resenting his absent old man, playing basketball, thinking about girls and collecting debts uh, with his intellectually disabled friend Sylvester for a low-level triad gang. One debt he calls to collect leads him to meet Ping, played by Nikki Yim, a girl with kidney disease. Moon falls head over heels in love for this girl, as she gives, and she gives his days meaning, and so he gets himself further embroiled in the criminal underworld to pay for a medical treatment. As the three lead characters struggle through their daily lives, they are haunted by dreams of Susan, a female high school student who committed suicide early on in the film. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Jason, for that summary. So this was a first-time watch for both of us. And I have to confess, this was a film that I had heard by title only, but I had never seen, and I knew absolutely nothing about so what about you what's your history with it did you know it much or is this is are you were you as in the dark as i was about this film um i back when i was in high school bbc4 used to have like film programs and um they would uh, review the latest releases and they would lean heavily into foreign films especially asian cinema and i remember this is one of the films that got positive reviews um and I could have sworn uh, I had watched it in the past. Um, so I was kind of aware how the film went and that it was really depressing. But when I rewatched it for this episode of the podcast, a lot of it was totally new to me. So uh, possibly uh, watching those film review programs made me think I'd already seen it. it that, that I got like such a strong impression from the review itself. Yeah. So this was, this was, I, I had surprised that I had not because this seems a film right up my alley and I you know I end up spoiler alert before I, I enjoyed the film I don't know how you felt about it but I thought it was uh it was a very very well done film especially for 
I don't I don't I don't want to say this that it was done well especially for given its production some circumstances because part of it I think was the manner it was produced is what makes this film great like exactly the same script exactly the same you know production crew but with a lot more money I don't think this film would have been as good or as as interesting as it ended up being yeah it, well, first thing to mention is it's completely different from the highly stylized Hong Kong action films that many listeners might be familiar with. Yeah. And it's not an action film. There is some action in it, but it's it's really not an action film. Well, it's, it's realistic action. Like the yeah. lead character fancies himself a gangster, but he's he's not very good at fighting. He's a brawler at best. Yeah. And the fights devolve into chaos. Yeah, and, and I didn't get, I, did, I don't think there's ever a point that they mention his age, Autumn's age, but he's... He might be under 18, for all we know. He's a high school dropout, and he seems close in age to the lead female character, who's 16. Yeah. He doesn't, we don't know how much time has passed since he dropped out of house, high school, though. He could, have been, he could have been doing this for a while. Although yeah. he, does mention, he does mention that he, he, or he's told that he should go back to school. So he's definitely not old enough that he wouldn't be accepted into high school again. Because I think, I can't imagine, I mean, the laws in every place are different, but I can't imagine you could be 25 and go back to high school. You probably have to get some sort of uh, a GED type of, uh, type of diploma at that point. Yeah, by school, it could also mean college or further education of some sort. I suppose that's true. That's true, yeah. But he's in that sort of age range. Like, you get the sense that he's approaching young adulthood. Like he's incredibly naive as a person, and he's got this youthful energy about him, so he comes across as young. Yeah, and I think uh, so. Let's 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 start our discussion by, uh, and we can get back to the main character personality and age again. But let's start. I uh, talk about you know the, this film's time and place. You mentioned in your plot summary that this was the first indie film to be released in in post handover Hong Kong. And actually, I mean, I, I was. I should have looked this up. Do you know, was there a month or like a date associated with the handover? Like, cause I, this came out in 97 and the handover was in 97, but what, what date was exactly the handover? I watched, uh, <laughs> I watched a couple of videos of the handover and I didn't even look at the date. It was like January 1st, 1997 was, you know, no, that's I it or was it there was, like. I remember watching it as a kid and it's, uh, it seems like the second half of the year. Okay. So this came out that the second half of the year, then like after the handover, because it's kind of because I think like I, I always thought thought of as happy together come is still being in pre handover Hong Kong, which was also released in the same year. But I suppose this one was post handover, although I have no idea about what the dates were. So it doesn't I don't think it I can actually make that claim. It was 1st of July, 1997. That's the, the handover or the release of this film? The handover. Oh, OK, OK. Somehow I, I had a feeling that it was in the summer. Yeah. But so on the on the one hand, like a lot of the the prevalent. So to continue with the point that I was trying to make, the prevalent feeling that you get as outsiders that I often got from, you know, Hong Kong at the time of the hangover was one of anxiety and generally one of uh, hostility in the sense that the, the, by and large Hong Kong was unfriendly to the handover was not not looking forward to it. They were, you know, anxious about would their way of life change. And that sort of partially proved true in, in recent in recent times and all that. But this film doesn't seem to be as 
cut and dry is that there seems to be, and I wrote that in my notes, there seems to be a crossroad between colonialism and communism because there's a lot of, there's a lot of criticisms about pre-handover Hong Kong here. Yeah. About sort of, and, and I don't, I don't necessarily know exactly if it is criticism or if there is also like components of a love letter that you could, you could make the argument. I don't know, but there's certainly some criticism about it, but I don't also think at the same time, I also don't think that the director, although maybe, I don't know, we can talk about that. He's making the case of, yes, once China comes, it's going to put an end to all this. I don't think he's also making that point. I, I felt like it was more ambivalence than anything else because there's criticism of Hong Kong as it was then. And um, like there's a certain cynicism towards um, mainland China as well, especially... It comes out especially with the uh, gangster wing who uh, Moon works for. He goes to mainland Hong Kong and um, he gets ripped off. And uh, Moon's father has uh, mistresses who come from the mainland. So, and um, yeah, the the Hong Kong depicted in the film is a very uh, bleak one where, uh, yeah, it seems like the system is failing these kids. It's, it's as, and I think this is as, uh, this is, I think, a great film to end the season because this is as 90s Hong Kong as it gets. This was what Hong Kong was actually in the 90s. Like, you could watch a War Kong Wai film that is in the 90s, whether it is Chunking Express or, um, or Happy, well, Happy Together is, is not in Hong Kong, but I don't know, Fallen Angels or any of the many Jackie Chan films set in Hong Kong in the 90s. And that's, that's probably not, I think it's a safe bet to say that's probably not what Hong Kong was truly like you know maybe maybe in a uh, Wong Kar Wai films there is some hint of realism but it's heavily romanticized but whereas this one was I think you get the impression that this is what what truly Hong Kong was like yeah um in an interview that Fruit Chan did um during the Hong Kong International Film Festival back on the film's initial release uh he did research by going around to housing projects um and interviewing kids and um, he actually grew up in an environment like that. Uh, he stated that he spent 10 years of his life uh, in those uh, subsidized houses, only that uh, by the time he returned to them, they'd be being cleaned up somewhat. He actually remembered them as being dank and dingy. And no, I think, I think I've seen, I, 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 there, and I'm, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later because there might be relevant, but I've, I, I have occasionally watch a couple of YouTubers that are based in Hong Kong. And I got the impression that there is still a part of Hong Kong, they call it old Hong Kong, that is still very much like that even to this day. I, I uh, judging by um, some of the independent films I've watched, like uh, Mad World, and um, it seems like, yeah, you've still got housing projects and people crammed together in small spaces and subletting like small apartments and uh, yeah, life is difficult. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, there was a job, I mean, I guess the, I, I can mention this now, but there was um there was a one YouTuber that I followed that I was, I, I mean, not followed, but occasionally watched. Then he was talking about he was moving from the UK, from the Hong Kong to the UK permanently. And uh, he was talking about sort of like the, the magic of Hong Kong that nobody likes it. But if you grew up there, there's something unexplainable or inexplicable about sort of the messiness of Hong Kong and like his word reminded me like his words reminded me of you know the depictions of this film that sort of like that's why I also think in all the brutality there's also a little bit of romanticization 
depicted in Fruit Chance version of Hong Kong. It is brutal. It is, uh, it is, uh, uh, you know, like very cutthroaty. But there is also a bit of, um, you know, like like some nostalgia about sort of like you know the 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 poetry of of the common man, just to, to put it in a, a very banal way, about sort of this this the the poor neighborhoods of Hong Kong. Yeah, um, it comes out in the shooting style, like uh, and the locations themselves. Um, like, there's some great scenes where uh, they go to the cemetery, for example. Yeah, that that one, and there's, there's like the overhead view or something like that. Yes, yeah, the sprawling. That's a beautiful. Sort of, that's a beautiful scene. Yeah, and um, and you've got uh, it gives you a real slice of working class Hong Kong life when you go down to the markets and you go to like the Seven Elevens and you see people. Uh, just going about their daily business. It's mostly older folks. Um, so, uh, and then in contrast, you've got Moon, who's like this young firecracker of a character. And uh, he's trying to figure out his place in it. And he doesn't quite figure it out until the end, which is really tragic. Yeah. Well, yeah. And he goes, he goes on a rampage at the end. And it's, uh, it is truly tragic. But the, yeah, there is uh, uh, some black comedy in it as well. It's not totally miserable. No, exactly, exactly. Uh, but yeah, and there's, um, you know, he is, let's, uh, if we go back to the main character, but he is part of a sort of, and this is where the criticism enters into place. He is, you know, a high school kid and he's recruited by the, the triads or the loan sharks to just be a collector. Yeah. And not sure why you would hire a high school kid to be a collector like it seems like a vile a job that you need a little bit more muscle in. But I was very struck by sort of the banality or the sort of like the matter of factness about sort of this aspect of life because you see him doing it. But then in the early scenes, there's a maybe a couple of scenes like this where like he is waiting because there are a few either other loan sharks that are just doing the same thing or bankers, even like, you know, uh, legal loners so to speak that are just you know like they're going door to door just like he is and then asking for their money back or something like that it's a good uh, it gives you a good indication of the ecosystem uh, how people get enmeshed in the sort of criminal underworld like if you just happen to go to go to a loan shark like uh if you're ever in need of money and um then that loan shark can apply pressure to draw you deeper in and um that's how they recruit some of the kids into their gangs yeah but there's also the bankers that almost do the same thing they probably don't use violence or not officially anyway but i think it's it's uh this i think this normalization of the culture like you said you know the the corruption almost of of this this blending of the legal and the illegal that's sort of become a way of life in hong kong by the time that fru chan is making this film and I think that's what he's kind of trying to make the point that it is almost this its own ecosystem of of just chaos in general. Chaos was the first if I if I had to, you know, like do this psychology experience when they say say the first word that comes into your mind after after something. And after seeing this film or throughout seeing this film, the first word that would come to my mind right away would be chaos. Because that seems to be sort of like the the modus operandi of this film, either in its production style or in its subject matter. Yeah, violence bursts out of nowhere. Um, the structure of the film is really messy. So, like the plot structure I gave uh, doesn't actually give the experience because it takes some time for things to kick into gear, and even then, Moon takes an age to 
commit to you know, helping out uh, with the medical expenses. Yeah, and um, I, it's and uh, the main character himself is a force of chaos. He just has that inability to focus on anything, and um, he's quite capricious. And it's very, uh, um, I'm not unstable, but certainly trigger happy in a sense. There is a. I found it interesting that there is a almost again another. I think another aspect that that Fruit Chain is maybe trying to criticize this sort of vilification of of violence or gangster life. This or or, or romanticization of of gangster life that maybe you see in films like Wong Kar Wai, for example, in certain in certain cases or other. You know, maybe maybe not Wong Kar Wai as much as um, who else? What what is other another filmmaking that that does this uh, often? Johnny So. Johnny Toe, yeah, that's a, that's a prime example. But he is, you know, like the, in in an early because this, uh, I will mention Wong Kar Wai many times because I I was reminded of him both in style but also in in uh, content sometimes. But you know the the internal monologues are very. Would you agree that they're very Wong Kar Wai ish? I felt this. I felt this would have fit perfectly in Fallen Angels. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But in er, in one of the early monologues, I think straight before meeting Ping. Uh, the main character uh, Autumn meet, meets Pink is he says, "I will never kill." Like I am. That's why I'll make it in this in this like you know world of gangsters because I'm not going to kill just because they asked me to. But then later on, when he first gets his he gets his first killing assignment and he gets his guns, there's that whole dance sequence. Yeah, that's something from Fallen Angels again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I wrote, and we'll, we can talk about cinematography and editing. I've have it. I have a, that as a bullet point. But I wrote down in my notes: this is a film made of what would make Wong Kar Wai's cutting room floor. <laughs> that you know, Fu Chan went there and picked everything that made up made Wong Kar Wai's uh, cutting room floor, and he put it. He made a film out of it because it's, it's. And that's not a criticism. I'm not. I don't intend that as a criticism. I just mean more like the messiness and the. Like the guerrilla, the guerrilla style that sort of permeates this film is very yeah. similar to Wong Kar Wai, but also very different at the same time. I thought, yeah, sometimes uh, the narration feels like he's leaning way too much into pathos. Yes, yes, exactly. But yeah, but to go back to the point that I was trying to make is he seems to have kind of given up that uh, rationale that kept him safe when he joined the tribe. He said, "It's like you know, it's it's very similar when you're like." Like you try to gamble, you say, no, no, I'm not going to get sucked into it. I'll gamble responsibly. But then, yeah. you know, obviously, uh, uh, I mean, it doesn't happen to everybody, obviously, but eventually, you know, you can really get sucked into the addictive part. And I think that's what happens to the main character. He is very, he's trying to, to make smart decisions to become rich, because that seems to be the end goal always with these type of things. Uh, but he's sucked in, and then he has that whole almost sexual uh, essential dance about with the guns that seem to give him so much joy that he is about, and of course, obviously later on that all is you know flipped on its head because he's not able to do it. But for a while, he's very ecstatic about being having this this assignment and with the guns and his with that whole dance and uh, that leads to his friend's death, like or his crew's death or whatever. Whoever is that guy that is knocking on his door that when he's not. He can't hear it because he has his headphones on. Yeah, you see that guy pop up earlier in the film, and one of the killers is the son of a next door neighbor. Yes, I I, I missed that part to be honest. Yeah, that was 
like again to talk about banality that was like a really horrifying bit like the the woman discovering that her son's now joined the criminal underworld like when she sees him run past that was really horrifying all she says is my son and he's got a meat cleaver uh, oh yeah yeah uh, is that uh, okay yeah I, mean, I think i think the style of this film which is again a, a, like Wong Kar Wai can be very chaotic but he makes sure that you're able to follow every thread of the film he doesn't he doesn't try to intentionally confuse you whether this one you it it can be hard sometimes to to you know follow the bits and pieces like you know, especially the the thing with the the suicide the suicide woman susan yeah the high school girl yeah it it took me a while to kind of figure out that the the bloody letters that that he uh he they're holding he and and um sylvester have are hers I'm sure there's a piece of narration which just makes the direct link. Yeah, yeah, there is, there is. But it's got, like, there is a scene, right, like, you know, they show her jumping multiple times in multiple styles. But there's a brief moment where you see her holding the letters, but it's very brief. And then I think there's a continuity error later on when she's actually shown from a slightly different angle and she doesn't have the letters, which is, and it's exactly the same scene. So... I mean, I'm not sure if it's a continuity error or just part of the style of the film, the sort of the whole chaotic uh, uh, atmosphere that he's trying to achieve. But that's why there's like I had a little bit of time. But then, you know, eventually I figured out not too late that, oh, okay, those are the letters. And then he he does because I watched the second time and he does mention it in narration, but you could miss it. It's it's a lot of things are said in passing that you could uh, you could miss it. And the copy I obtained a DVD. of a, of a better copy, but the copy that I first watched that is available on YouTube, the subtitles for that one are not great. Yeah. Um, it's been put out by uh, Eureka Masters of Cinema. But um, uh, yeah, there's a lot of ambiguity um, uh, in the film. You don't know what's... You know, it mixes dream and uh, reality together. And uh, for example, like uh, Moon has dreams of Susan, even though he's never seen her before. And yeah, so it's kind of like, with that in mind, you know, every subsequent scene with Susan, is this a dream uh, or it, or does he have some better understanding of, of some sort? Uh, so there's a lot of ambiguity running throughout it that could cause confusion. I, I sort of, because there is this, every time we see Susan, there's almost this blue hue. Yeah, there's a blue tint, yeah. There's a blue tint. The only, t- I think there's only one shot without a blue tint and that's when... Um... Sylvester discovers her. And that was a really grim scene because like Sylvester's the only one to stop and pay attention exactly, to Exactly, yeah, no, I I noticed that too. There's a car that just drives by, stops for a bit, and then uh, keeps driving on. Yeah, the, the lady driving the car leans out the window and then drives on. It's like another adult let these kids down. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. But but uh but that's the only the only I think shot with her that it just doesn't have a blue tint, but every every other uh, every other, especially with her jumping or being on the building or looking into that cross thing that that is there, that is like very, I don't know how to describe, but it's a it doesn't that doesn't look like it's part of a church, although it probably is. I I took it to symbolize that, but then also like with Susan and with Moon later on, you've got um like public transport, like airplanes and trains going on in the background, which is like a symbol of lives like going nowhere. Exactly, but I took you know the 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 style of that I took as though that's we're not seeing the non-linear or the flashback of how it happened. We're seeing Moon recreate her death 
based on Sylvester's retelling of that because Sylvester's, you know, I mean, he he doesn't he seems you know a very functional adult most of the time. If if it weren't for the bullies, I think I feel like he would be all right. Uh, he doesn't need that much help, but he pro he also doesn't look like the type who could accurately narrate a scene like that, especially since he probably also didn't see it. He just saw the body on the ground. But so so I so that's definitely I think we are meant to take that as Moon recreating that scene and sort of like stylized or dreaming of that maybe even stylized in his dream. And for some reason there's a lot of eroticism in his dreams with that scene. And there's there's almost like multiple times in this film there's the association of eroticism and pain. Because that's how they punish Sylvester in one scene, those bullies. Yeah, like um when Moon first dreams of Susan, there's liquids going from her body, but it's white initially, which uh, has you know certain connotations, and then it turns to red. I'm pretty sure that was milk, because that looked like milk. It has to be milk. <laughs> yeah. But um, because uh, Moon is like uh, a young man, uh, perhaps still a teen, he's hypersexual, and um, he's constantly having um, fantasies throughout the movie. So it's like this weird sort of meshing of Eros and Thanatos. Yeah, but it is it is definitely, I think, unambiguously depicted as punishment because he wants them to stop. He's not he doesn't welcome those feelings. He do, he doesn't yeah. seem disturbed by the fact that are happening with images of her death, but he's definitely just the her appearance is just the appearance of her in his dream seems to haunt him and he's he wants them to stop. And he can't make them. I don't think he ever makes them stop until his very end, his very death. But she comes across as a succubus. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the, the letters that she leaves behind that uh, Sylvester picks up are like cursed objects that has now infected these three people. I uh, there's there's one part where Moon says he's um, thinking about Ping. Uh, he's fantasizing about her, but then he goes back to Susan. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. He just can't, can't, can't escape her. And I think that's, that's sort of, she, I, th this is one of those things where she is, that I've mentioned before, where she's, I'm, I'm sure she's meant to symbolize something that the, you know, the filmmakers or the writers or the actors, whatever, like have something in mind. And I know that, but I, I, I'm not exactly sure what she is. Is she, is she supposed to be the decadence of, is she supposed to be sort of an in personification of his guilt? Uh, is it a personification of sort of like everything that's wrong with this town, or is it is it is there something positive in her in her as a symbol? I I don't know. I'm not sure. I wasn't quite sure either. I mean, there's definitely something there. There's the the images of planes flying across as she's trying to like uh, walk the narrow ledge on her on the top of the building, and there's a plane passing by. And then then the other shot is the cross, and we see that multiple times. And then there is some characters on the building. I, I, the, the, the copy, either copy that I watched did not translate those characters, the writing on the building that, is, that has the cross that she falls off. So I would be curious to know what those actually say, but I couldn't, I don't know, there, there was no translation of it. Yeah, it could just be that she's a uh, sort of archetypal teenage uh, schoolgirl who uh, kills herself because of uh, jealousy and love. That's true. That's true. But I don't think the, the reason of her suicide is as important. The actual, you know, like in-universe, so to speak, reason of her suicide is as important as what it symbolizes to our main characters. No, no. It seems to sort of further embellish like the sort of um, 
self-destructive um, tendencies that Moon has. Yeah, we see scenes of him and I think Ping and Sylvester at some point, you know, stalking her parents. Why do you think it takes so long for him to give the letters back? At one point in the film, it seems like he expected the, the letter to. Uh, they give. They try to give the letter back. They they've got two letters. They give one to the lover of Susan, and they've got. They try to give one to the parents, but they run away, um, partly in fear, probably, of being discovered. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah, I've, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I think he expected the letters to be destroyed, but Ping kept a hold of it. And it wasn't until like he uh, Moon has lost everything that he finally sends the letter to the parents, and it's got like um, notes from the other characters as addendums added to it. And throughout the film, he like he's associated the letters with this bad luck, and he's and he comes to believe in like pre predetermined futures, and that this letter symbolizes like this is where everything went wrong. So, in order to try and um. I don't know, uh, fulfill some sort of cycle, he gives it to the parents. There is a, uh, the, another, another thing that's going to struck me, uh, might be one of my favorite scenes of the film, is where he is uh, you know, thinking of killing his father, and then he sees another character kill his father in the bathroom, and that just kind of sends him into almost a shock. And I don't yeah. know if that was the son of the neighbor that you mentioned, or was that just some random guy? That was just some random guy. Okay. And, I, and this is like an example of like the absurd black humor of the film, which is like Moon fancies himself as a gangster, but it's kind of like uh, when violence happens, like he's unable to uh, fully grapple with it. Like this kid comes out of nowhere and actually does the deed and Moon is staggered by it. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And then, like, the same thing happens when he's actually about to kill someone. He first fantasizes about the act. Yeah. But then he can't, he can't actually do it. He can't kill until he has, like you mentioned several times, he's lost everything. And that's, I thought that was a brilliant, a beautiful scene where he's running down the hill. And again, you've got public transport going in the opposite direction. And he's, like, going down the hill. So <laughs> we can see what that symbolizes. And I think that, that scene with the train, I think I read somewhere that it was improvised. Yeah, and also like Sammy's acting, where he's just whimpering after yeah. failing the hit, like the uh, like he couldn't kill, and it was just such a traumatic thing to even attempt. It, it was really moving, and it's one of the most memorable scenes in the film. You know, I mean, it it, it is a, a common trope of of someone trying to act tough, but when it, when push comes to shove, they're not able to actually do the violent thing. But you know, once he's lost everything. It seems to be almost a, cathar a catharsis where he just goes on a killing rampage and he doesn't, he kills his boss, but then I also think he kills a bunch of random people that, that are not, uh, especially in that bus scene, that are not, you know, haven't done anything. He's kind of, he's kind of lost all the, you know, the ra completely lost the rationality that he sort of so much held onto so much in the beginning of the film. Yeah. There was some um, innocent bystander shot in the bus scene, which like um, t a completely different tone to the rest of the film in how melodramatic that moment is. Yeah. Uh, is, I was a bit uh, like surprised that he actually survives the, the, the first stabbing. It looked like he was getting stabbed in the kidney. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. But so many, he got stabbed so many times, though. And left in the trash. 
Yeah, so that's like it was still like a lot of blood. But yeah, oh, I wonder. I I didn't now that you mention it. Yeah, it it, it does look like he had stabbed in the kidney, but I didn't realize at the time. Do you think that's maybe he couldn't? Uh, well, I don't, obviously he was not conscious to 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 donate. But there was a you know he decides to donate the the kid her kidney to his girlfriend to Ping. Uh, but he, obviously that that doesn't happen. Yeah, he makes that decision before he gets stabbed, and. I thought that could be part of the plot. Like he's he loses one kidney, he's just got one left. He can't give it to Ping, but it doesn't matter in the end anyway. Yeah, well, yeah, but also he was, you know, even if he didn't lose it, I think he was too. He was unconscious to make that decision. Yeah, he does. There is that dialogue of uh, that that scene with her when he looks like he's about to die, and the mother of Ping is trying to bar- bargain for his organs with a doctor. Oh, she was a reprehensible character. Yeah. She's like, uh, if I, I lost all sympathy for her. In yeah. Scene. And there's, there's, I mean, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't lose that much sympathy because, well, I, she, she is a reprehensible character, but she's also, I think that's the product of Hong Kong society. Well, you can see that, uh, Moon, Ping, Sylvester, uh, the latest generation. She's the previous generation of working class people who've just been left by the wayside. And that's how she's learned to survive. But I did find it heartbreaking. I mean, this is, I guess you can interpret it more way when, when finally Ping is dead and uh, Moon goes to inquire about Ping. He's just, he doesn't have the, he looks like, you know, I interpret that as a person who doesn't even have the will to, to mourn anymore. He just, you know, like the, the, the city has taken or the, you know, the, whatever, her circumstances have taken everything away from her and she, she can no longer be human enough to even mourn for her own doctor because she seems very, very measured in that scene. But she is nicer to Moon, though. She's nicer than she's ever been in that scene to Moon, or she's at least less hostile, to uh, the very least. I did wonder if that was her putting on a front so she doesn't have to deal with Moon anymore. Like, she says everything possible to hurt him. But it, it, she does give him the letter or something. Yeah. It's kind of like, this is our goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, she, she definitely doesn't expect to see Moon anymore. I think she says that. I forget exactly. But I think she says, never come here anymore or something like that. Yeah. And she's going to be yet another old person left to molder away in these uh, housing projects. Yeah, exactly. With no, no income. And of course, it is. I, I also thought it was curious that the death of his girlfriend is not what sends him over to the rampage, although I'm perhaps adds to the cup, but it is the death of Sylvester that is what, what sends him to the, <laughs> what triggers the rampage. It's the sense that he's just failed the two most important people in his life, and he's coming to the understanding that he should have been a better family member to his mother. Like a lot of the narration in the final uh, quarter is him saying he wishes he could see his mother one last time. But I didn't. One thing that I sort of like struggled with this film is about that is like, for example, to just a I can't think of a better example now, but Scarface. You know, everything in the movie Scarface in the in both versions actually. You know, all the tragedy that happens to the characters in this. In in the by the end of the film is is clearly the 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 fault of the main character. He brought it on himself, so to speak. You know the, the Tony Montana. But yeah. in this one, I I have a harder time making that argument. It is like that. 
you know, because he was, you know, like, I think you sympathize with a character too much with the main character because and, and I think the fact that he's just a kid probably helps. Like, I did not get the entire sense that the film is trying to, you know, like, make this a self a self-inflicted tragedy. This is it feels more like the ending was inevitable, but also partly that Moon and everybody else was were a victim of circumstance. Well, the main characters are naive. It's an uncaring world. Like very few of the adults are interested in helping out the kids. A lot of the adults are keen on exploiting them, and because the kids are naive, it was ine- inevitable that by hanging around with criminals, they come to a bad end. Yeah, and it does. Uh, like I mentioned, it does look like Moon is trying to make the right choices in the begin, at least in, in the early parts of the film. But he is he's a bit of a hothead. Like he can't help grab the cleaver. When he sees his father for the first time with, I don't always, that's not, I don't think that's his father. I think that's, uh, uh, is that his father or is that like her mom's newest boyfriend or something? Yeah, I, it's, I took it to be the, uh, latest boyfriend playing away from home. Yeah. Something like that. I don't know. Uh, but he, yeah, he definitely is not a, a, a measured person because he, he always goes to the cleaver every time something, something bad happens to him. Yeah. Until he gets the guns, of course. And it is amazing how far he goes with shooting everybody before any any authorities show up. <laughs> well, the authorities have long stopped caring about the working classes, perhaps. Yeah. So we, uh, I, I hinted at this a little bit, but what do you think... So the title of the film is Made in Hong Kong. What, what do you think is the thing that is made in Hong Kong in this film? I, I, um... I think it's this particular brand of youth, um, specifically Moon. It's this kid who's grown up in subsidized housing, who's fallen prey to um, uh, joining triads and uh, the criminal underworlds. And it's because the system of Hong Kong um, hasn't hasn't taken better care of um, youngsters. Uh, That's what I took it to be. Yeah, no, I th- I think that's I think that's probably the the main interpretation. I yeah, I mean I think it's you know the sort of like this. I think the maybe there is this like you know obviously Hong Kong is a colonized region, and so we have this all, all colonial overtones and, and inevitably connected to capitalism. But I think also the argument the the and I think this this is colored by sort of like the YouTube video that I mentioned about the guy saying there's something unique about Hong Kong. And I think that's what maybe Fruit China is also trying to say. There's, you know, this this specific, you know, obviously there are positives about it, but this specific type of suffering is made in Hong Kong. This specific type of cynicism, this specific type of, of uh, violence, this specific type of, I don't know, misery. It is made in Hong Kong. It's not, it's not a type of, Misery that you see in other, all other places similar to Hong Kong. Yeah, just to go back to that interview I mentioned earlier, there's um, a bit in it where uh, Fruit Chan says, The script which I started writing in late 1995 was about the irresponsible, mean-spirited, devil-may-care attitudes of some young people in Hong Kong. In my research, I found that these young people had nothing in mind for their future, even with 1997 drawing to a close. They had no prospect in life. And uh, Moon Lee is kind of like the the uh, perfect representation of that sort of mindset. Yeah. Of course, ironically, he also would not be able to make this film without a devil-may-care attitude 
given the production uh, that this film, sort of the production history of this film, because he did have to steal or borrow equipment and, and film stock from from everyone else. And, you know, yeah. go to the streets and shoot guerrilla style and maybe bend a few laws and regulation along the way. Well, it's uh, like Andy Lau is in the credits. So I was really surprised, like superstar Andy Lau. What, what uh, does he do? Well, he's listed as producer. Ah, and okay. um, it seems like his company helped out uh, by giving leftover film stock, which Fruit Chan could use. Mm, interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or maybe it was like you know, Andila was one in one of the productions that Fruit Chan worked as an assistant producer, and he said, "You stole so much film from me. You gotta give me a credit at least." <laughs> Well, let's not let's not forget that Andy Lau um, appears in Wong Kar Wai films and Hui films. Uh, yeah, it's nice to see uh, like a big star um, helping out in small indie production like this. Yeah. So again, also you know we what is made in Hong Kong is you know what you said and what I mentioned. Why? What do you think is the film's attitude towards the handover towards the Chinese? Of course, it is not as it's not rosy, but do you think there is a, a sense of optimism there, com, com, contrary to you sort of what was the general perception of Hong Kong at the time, or the general feeling of Hong Kong at the time? I think it's ambivalence. It's kind of like the system's bad now. Do you think there's almost a hopelessness that it's not going to change that much? Yeah, it, it ends with those words of Chairman Mao saying, "We've invested everything." Yeah, that confused confused the hell out of me. That seemed like it, it seems like an ironic comment. Like, do you think I, it's ironic, or do you think it was like inserted there by you know the censors post handover? Oh no, I think there was a lot more independence like uh, twenty years ago, and it's very much ironic. It's I get the sense that wherever you go, um, the older generation will exploit the youth as much as they say they'll they want to invest in it. I see. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I this is. I think. This is the only Fruit Shan film that I've seen. I've seen his segment in uh, in one of those uh, compilation horror films. Uh, Three Extremes. Three Extremes. I saw his... And actually, his segment was the best. Dumplings it, in that dumplings, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the best of that. I mean, I think Park Chang-wook Chan has a segment in that one as well. Yeah, there's someone uh, tied to a piano in that one. Yeah, and there's a... The third one is Mike. Is it Mike? Yeah. Is it A yeah. Girl in a Box? I, I don't remember, but definitely the first, I remember that the first one was the best, my favorite part of that. Uh, so so th he's definitely a good director, but I'd be curious to, you know, this is a part of a an unofficial trilogy. So the Handover trilogy or the 1997 trilogy, and then he has another, the Prostitute trilogy, and all of them have sort of share the, the similar style. So I'd be very curious to check them out. I have, a, I have not, like Fruit Chan is someone who I've mostly neglected. Uh, he actually had a film. At the New York Asian Film Festival this year, Coffin Homes. Ah, I see. But uh, that was a you... screener available. Oh, I see. Okay. So you didn't want... I, I certainly did not end up watching it. No. Um, yeah, I get the sense that um, post-made in Hong Kong, a lot of his films haven't hit any... Uh, uh, haven't been uh, as successful critically. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's true. I think... Um... I mean, I think he's become, he's remained a successful filmmaker in terms of, you know, I think he's, uh, in terms of um, box office. He's still a name. He's still a name, yeah. yes. But yeah, I, I think you're right. Especially his most recent films, I don't think they are, they have quite the, 
the gravitas of his uh I think I think I looked up his films immediately after Made in Hong Kong and all of them have none of them uh, we'll we'll talk about awards and we might as well jump into it. So the film so the film won the 1997 Hong Kong Film Award, which is the Hong Kong um uh, Oscar equivalent for best film, best director, and best new performer. And some of his subsequent subsequent films were nominated for similar awards, which is still pretty good as far as critical reception goes. But then after that, sort of like you know mid to late two thousands, that's when I think he started getting less and less attention. He also um, took the Golden Horse Award for best director and screenplay, and Hong for, Kong for film. Sorry, for made in Hong Kong. Yeah, and the 1987 Hong Kong Film Critics Society Award for Best Director and Film of Merit. His uh, film, his recent film, uh, Three Husbands, was also, I, I've, I've heard some, you know, I, I remember when that came out 2017, 2018, I remember there was some, some uh, talk around that, but not much else. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he is... Um, well, I'm okay. So I'm looking at uh, at his nomination, and he's been nominated for awards, but he he hasn't won anything big since. Like he was nominated for best director in the Hong Kong Film Awards for that film, so in 2019, for the Three Husbands. Yeah, and he was nominated for uh, in 2015 for The Midnight After, for best screenplay. Uh, but uh, nothing, nothing, nothing won. And I don't think he's he's sort of like won any big awards at festivals either. Mm. Yeah, I think he's still best remembered for meeting Hong Kong. Yeah, which is almost it's a film that I think is inevitably tied to, even though not directly about, inevitably tied to sort of this '90s period of Hong Kong, especially you know right around the handover where you know people were. You know, I mean, the the film is not necessarily about the anxiety of the handover, but it is the handover was a time of self evaluation about what we are, what you know Hong Kong is, and what it will become, and what can it become for the better, and what can can happen for the worse. Yeah, and, you know, obviously both happened. Uh, you know, some things possibly move for the better, some things possibly move for the worse, uh, or to, towards a worse direction. But this is. This is, as far as Hong Kong cinema, th- things did move for the worse. And this was sort of like, this was almost 1997. I think we mentioned again when it comes to, when we talked about all the other 1997 film and especially Wong Kar Wai's 1997 Happy Together. But this was almost the last good year for for Hong Kong cinema. Then it was almost downhill, almost entirely downhill from here. Uh, would you say that's like... Um due to the influence of uh, the mainland and having to meet sort of commercial uh, factors to uh, appeal to audiences over there? That, that's partly true. Partly was the, you know, the, the competition from the mainland Yeah. in terms of cinema. And then uh, there was the, the SARS epidemic in, two, 20, in the early 2000s, 2003, I think. Yeah. Which completely, you know, decimated the film industry in in Asia, and especially Hong Kong suffered from that. And it was never like there was. I read an article that like Hong Kong, the cinema, the Hong Kong cinema experience was never the same after the the that that two thousand SARS epidemic in Asia. Yeah, and then of course there's also the financial crisis, which was, I think we can safely assume that Hong Kong 
was more susceptible than China, given the 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 style of their economies. Yeah, much more central controlling Beijing. Yes, yes. Yeah, like a recent phenomenon we see with、uh, Hong Kong movies is the directors are all working、uh, on mainland productions now and telling mainland stories. Yeah, all,、uh, especially all the big directors of the nineties. Yeah. So and、uh, yeah, it's、uh, it's a shame to see them sort of、uh, defend uh, Beijing's、um, annexation of Hong Kong at times. Yeah, and you know, obviously the again, this is. I mean, I'm, I I obviously don't care what language films are made as long as they're good films and there's as long as they're not you know like subject to heavy censorships and all that. But it does. I think it does.、Uh, for better or for worse, made if the film made in Hong Kong is all about Hong Kong culture. And you know, having having for commercial or censorship reasons in recent years, having to make most Hong Kong films or a lot of Hong Kong films in Mandarin instead of Cantonese is almost like a, I don't know, a censorship of the culture or a, a、yeah. putting. I don't. I don't. I'm looking for a word and I can't think of it, but a a put down of the culture of the of the Hong Kong culture in favor of the wider appeal of the of mainland China. Well, you you see this in a, a lot of discussions over colonialism. That when、uh, one of the things, first things that suppressed、uh, after a takeover is language to separate people from the original culture. Of course, yeah, yeah. But also,、um, like the demands of the mainland film industry and the censorship involved、uh, leads to just really, really dull productions. In in many cases, yeah. Not that there aren't interesting films coming out, but yes. Um, yeah, the independent scene in China looks interesting, but again, they're subject to censorship. So it's like, how much do we actually get to see? Yeah, yeah,、uh, and even in Hong Kong, and even and actually, I would argue even Taiwan is not going making a lot of films that are anti-China for economic reasons mostly. Yeah,、Or、America, America for that matter, or the entire Western world is not really making anti-China films because they want to sell there. Have you、uh, have you forgiven John Cena yet? No, although I don't care that it doesn't keep me up at night. <laughs> okay, because、like, I don't care that much. But but no, of course not. Well, this is one of the things with、uh, sort of、um, <clears throat> command and control economy,、uh, centralized economy that Beijing has. Is they've got so much dominance over what gets screened that Hollywood is now being shut out of China. China has enough population. That they don't care. It's self-sustaining in a sense. That they don't care about exporting. You know, like you can make someone can make a ripoff of Final Fantasy, you know, and just sell it in China, where they don't have to worry about international laws or、yeah. international,、uh, you know, tariffs. They just sell it in China, and that's enough for them. They have a, a 1.6 billion customers that they can market to, and that was actually true in the U.S. as well. The U.S., you know, it's not 1.6 billion, but it is 300 plus million. That should be enough to make a profit on anything. But it's just, I think, the greed of 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 production companies recently, and the the huge, you know, like production projects that they are doing because they can rely on a market like China, has made it so,、uh, has made it like just. This has put them in this ridiculous conundrum that, like, a film is not profitable, or many films are they need they see it as a necessity that they must market to China when they don't really have to. The Western world is enough of an audience to, to you know, make a profit is just not enough for. I mean, not a, not 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 as much profit as these people would like to. Um,、uh, do you think we could see a shakeup with the Hollywood system because budgets have ballooned out of control, and you? 
it's either uh, really low budget indies or big blockbuster summer tent poles, which are becoming even more common than ever. Will we see the return yeah. of like uh, middle budget movies? Well, yeah. so so yes and no. I mean, the mid budget movie never went away. It 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 just found a different market, and that is streaming. Netflix, yeah, yeah, Netflix and everything else. On, Amazon based on the, the same model, and it's you know, and that's yeah. I mean, I'm. I don't want theaters to go away, and I don't think theaters will go away, but they will diminish in importance. And you know, like all these, you know, I, I guess the only reason why we view Amazon films or Netflix film as second class citizen is because people like the Academy Awards have very these very strict requirements. But once those go away, and I'm not necessarily advocating for them to go away, but I think they will inevitably go away. It will become, you know, like a, a film on Netflix is going to be just as prestigious as any film that would have come out in the cinemas in the last 120 years of the entire history of Hollywood. Yeah, there's there's that big controversy at Venice. Um, was yeah, it last same year thing. Yeah, same thing. Can, can. Yeah, they uh, Venice opened their doors to Netflix and then eventually Can relented and said, okay, we'll have uh, streaming films. Yeah, and it, and you know the pandemic made it quicker for this things to happen, but it it was inevitable. Yeah, and and again, I I don't want theater. I don't want this to happen. I don't even want. I'm not even in favor of simultaneous releases when something comes out in theaters and on Netflix. I do like that theatrical priority for at least you know some time, and then just do whatever, like do it, leave it on Netflix for its entire life. That's fine. Like there's this, but it is an artificial for, with that was, I mean, at some point that was a technological limitation that you could only release the, with the quality of product, the quality that films were shot at 35 millimeter film. You could only project it on a, on a big screen in the cinemas. And that was just, you know, technical and economic reasons. But now it's, it's an artificial barrier. There's no real reason why this uh, movie has to go in theaters first. Yeah. It's just that you can 4K stream something to same quality in your home. And if you have a big screen TV, it's pretty much the same experience. Almost the same experience. Unless you I, invite a, a few noisy people to your house, then it's an yeah. identical experience. Hand everybody popcorn. Yeah. So, so, it is, so there's really no economic or technological reason for theaters to still exist, but I still don't want them to go away. Uh, the experience of being in cinemas is like embedded in culture and people love going out. Yeah, but culture is, culture is only exist while people who practice it go. Once a, the generation that is used to going to the theaters, you know, disappears, is that still going to be embedded in culture? Uh, with uh, newer generations coming up now, yeah, the concept of streaming is and renting things from online uh, corporate uh, from online giants is uh, much more the norm. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, what 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 led us to this discussion? <laughs> oh yeah, the, China, the whole yeah. So so office. bottom line yeah. is, you know, make the 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 middle market is not disappearing, uh, and also we don't need the film studios don't need uh, China to make a profit. They can make a profit perfectly fine. Just don't pay actors so much. That's that's a common complaint that I've heard from people in the film industry that are not actors. They say actors. If you see a film that has a hundred fifty million dollar budget, that's actors are getting most of that. Yeah, it's not the special effects. It's not all your the fancy camera work and cinematography. It's the your, your uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. and your uh, J. Jim Evans and all. No, what's uh, 
Uh, yeah. What's, like, what's Captain America? Who's the actor? Uh, Chris Evans. Chris Evans. I said Jim Evans. Chris Evans. He looks like a Jim. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you're better off paying the crew uh, livable wages. I mean, they are paid, but they're paid, you know, normal livable wages. You know, they, they don't starve. You know, if you're working a big production movie, you don't you don't starve, but you also nothing compared to what actors get paid. I don't know. Is there a, a strike brewing in Hollywood at the moment? I, just... I I am a little bit out of the loop when it comes to following the news, so I don't know. You might be. I have no idea, but it's possible. Hmm. Yeah, I've yeah. I need to check it up. I E T A S. Uh, anyway, yeah, moving on. <laughs> but yeah, so this is, I think, <clears throat> I think we can maybe transition from Made in Hong Kong to, you know, just talking about our experience this season, sort of like talk, I don't know, I, we, I, don't, I did not prepare for this and I, I'm, I don't know if you prepared anything to sort of talk, talk about, but what's, what's your takeaway from our season thus far? Um, I think it's a deeper appreciation of um, Korean history, um, the move to democracy, and uh, the sort of uh, slow decay of, uh, or rapid decay, I suppose, of capitalism as we see it move into sort of like, uh, I guess uh, the term is parasitic capitalism. And uh, we see so many characters um, navigating hostile environments and um, coming to horrible ends. Yeah, it's this almost just. A, I mean, I, I didn't think of this, but it is. It does make sense. It's almost like the the Cold War ended, so now we have. There's no. There's no enemy, quote unquote, enemy to balance the scales. So it's like a game of music, musical chairs, and all of a sudden the chairs stayed the same, but the people playing doubled. Yeah, and I think that definitely shows in a lot of films, like a film like Making Hong Kong. Yeah. Not that that was unique to Hong Kong in the 90s, but I think it's definitely, I think, where people began to sort of, you know, like I said, examine themselves due to the upcoming hangover. Uh, handover. <laughs> or, yeah, like, uh, or Green Fish, where um, consumerism and um, changes uh, to the economy leave people, leave the main character behind. And again, in Made in Hong Kong, a lot of the a youth are exploited and left behind by these big political changes they have no control over a, a sense that people don't have control over their lives that's another thing yeah and i think in a, in a there's also this cultural change in the case of korea with we saw it in number three where there's this shift to democracy but there's this you know like people like the the a big part of that movie was we're moving into a new century we have to change our ways and that was more more referring to the culture to, to like the culture of the South Korean sort of mentality as opposed to economy, although economy was also a big thing in that. Yeah. And we also had, you know, like, I think, I think also my realizations were mostly when it came to South Korea was, you know, like the effects of democratization. And uh, that was, you know, for example, in a film like uh, 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 The Quiet Family and a little bit in the Whispering Corridors uh, movies that we examined last time in la the last episode, there was, uh, you know, it's just, it's a, a new, uh, uh, there's the generational divide that is, you know, like that sort of will shape how, how the country, an entire nation moves into a new millennium. I, uh, the one of the things that really impressed me about, um, the, uh, this season was the, the Korean films in particular, where they, uh, tackled politics with so much gusto. And uh, 
in comparison, like Japanese films uh, that we covered retreated into deeply personal stories. And Hong Kong films, uh, yeah, um, I haven't really formulated an idea about Hong Kong films yet. Just chaotic Stephen Chow. I think, yeah, so there's Stephen Chow and there's very diverse. And I think it was sort of, it was almost like, we, yeah, we did Stephen Chow, we did Wong Kar Wai, and we did, uh, we didn't do Jackie Chan this season, did we? No. I don't think so. We did, uh, yeah, Wong Kar Wai, Stephen Chow, we did uh, Fruit Chan. Uh, what else? I think that was it out of the 10. That was it for, what? That yeah. was it out yeah. of the 10. Because... Yes. And, um, and that was, you know, I think that's a good representation of the diversity of filmmakers. You know, in the 90s, Hong Kong film was, you know, sort of like coming out of a very rapid grow in the late 70s and, and 80s. And I think it was an industry probably, you know, on not on the decline, but maybe an industry that saw the decline in its future. And it did not necessarily have that sort of unifying sense like South Korean cinema had. At the time, and South Korean was also an industry in the rise, so there was a lot of uh, filmmakers finding their voices, not being afraid to experiment, and also finding a supporting environment to experiment. Yeah, fewer restraints on them because they were coming from different fields, like theatre. Yes, and so they were able to bring together all of this diverse array of talents, um, whereas Hong Kong and Japan were already sort of stratified and established. Exactly, but also I think in the case of Japan, there was this. You, the Japan was perhaps of the. the we didn't venture into China or Thailand, which is probably a, an oversight on our part. But we can maybe look into those countries in future seasons. But Japan was is the most established film industry of all the ones that we've looked so far. Yeah, and you know they had their political time in the '60s and the '70s, and I think that's you know they're always a capitalist oriented industry. So in the seven in the late seventies, they faced uh, the threat of television. Yeah, no, and that's why Nikatsu put out the Roman porno movies. Yeah, I, I, yeah. In terms of politics in Japan, I suppose it's also a decline in uh, engagement with politics after the failure of student movements in the sixties and seventies. That's true as well. Yeah, it's just this distancing away from something controversial as the nation. Um, sort of settled into an economic boom and then a bust. And, you know, it's almost an economic plateau at this point. Yeah. Uh, and, and that continues today, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. and I think, I think those are my takeaways as well. It's, it's, I think it's, each, it's interesting that each, each, there's not a necessarily unified, a unified sort of uh, trajectory that these three countries that we examined took, but there was, each of them had its, its own little, uh, you know, like, paths or little little uh, common patterns that sort of they displayed in uh in the 90s as as like sort of the world was going through some massive changes yeah i think we talked about it last season where it's definitely a sense that um they come in waves or it's like a baton being passed so japan uh established itself as a cinematic powerhouse and then in the 80s and uh early 90s hong kong took over and then south korea took over in the late 90s early 2000s yes and china is doing its own thing com completely hollywood type is trying to essentially become a hollywood in asia with huge budget and special effects and looking forward to wolf warrior 10 yeah well yeah yeah 
not not that there isn't good cinema from China, but it like the mainstream is in those giant productions that you know they again they don't need to 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 worry about exporting. Like, cause now Hollywood, like, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just repeating myself, but if it, if it makes a giant production, it needs to export or it, it thinks it needs to export, but China doesn't. Yeah. I would, um, I, I think, uh, we in the West need to get a better sense of what the independent film scene in China is all about. And there are events that happen where, uh, people try to, uh, uh, screen, um, indie Chinese films straight from the nineties up until now. I mean, as 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 review, in the process of reviewing for the for V Cinema, I have seen a fair share of Chinese indie films because that's mostly what we review. And there there's good cinema going on there. There's a a film called Bailey, which I saw in um, I think I think it was a two nine twenty nineteen film uh, hmm. about sort of a this it's, it's sort of a thriller about a lesbian couple, a same sex female couple in China. A very, a very, very well done, very nice, a very, very, very interesting film. Hmm. Okay, not political, but uh, but still, nevertheless, very interesting. So there is definitely a, a thriving indie scene in China, and there might be, you know, might be China might be a very good environment for indie scene because of its huge population. Even if you get one percent of the people interesting, you know, you made a profit. Well, you see revivals of um, certain Western films that are like dismissed. Uh, over here, um, they get picked up in China, so it's always amusing. Yeah, or, or you know, or films that don't do well here but do incredibly well in China, like uh, that World of Warcraft movie. Mm. Uh, yeah, one of the, uh, a title I've kind of uh, picked up on at the Yamagata International Documentary Film Festival is Ants Dynamic, a documentary, two-hour documentary about workers battling against a former employer, China Telecom. And using art and uh, photography and theater to um, sort of get restitution for their uh, wages and rights. And so it's kind of like these interesting films are being made. It's just like connecting them with audiences, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So is there, you know, so this is the end of our discussion for this film. And we talked a little bit about the the season overall. Is there anything else that you feel we should go over that we haven't a fantastic lead performance by sam lee for go yeah absolutely all everybody was fantastic in this film in terms of performances it's it's um uh it, part, it felt as though they were not actors they were the characters that they were portraying yeah and i think i think sam lee the the main character was sort of brought up in that environment so that's why he felt so at home in that well just to go back to that um interview with um uh, Fruit Chan, he said that Sam Lee was uh, train was an electrician, and he ran into him uh, on a basketball court. Sam Lee was skateboarding at the time, and um, he was also a rapper. Oh, interesting! <laughs> uh, um, I, I have to I have to hear him sing. Yeah, <laughs> you've got uh, Wenders Lee who plays Sylvester. I checked out his IMDb credits, and he's working as an editor. And uh, I saw that too. Yeah, yeah. It's some interesting, some pretty big productions. Yeah. Uh, Love Off the Cuff, um, Bulgaria. Um, I can't remember the director's name, but he's quite prolific and popular around the And he's won world. a bunch of awards as an editor. Yeah. There's one film um, that stood out, You Shoot, I Shoot, about the hitman who has a, a documentary following him. Uh, also, uh, another thing to mention is the terrible sartorial choices. The fashion in this film is not good. <laughs> 
Oh, I, I, I liked the clothes that the characters were wearing. Felt very 90s. I, uh, Sam Lee pulled it off, but the rest of the characters... <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's also on screen most of the time. I thought Pink was, you know, I mean, fa- fairly conventionally dressed, I think, most of the time. That scene where uh, Moon and the gangsters raid the office looking for um, Fat... Is it Fat Chan? And they are, they're all dressed like they're on the Tour de France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it it is especially, but it is. I mean, going back to just Moon. I mean, it's very striking that he's sort of just his appearance. He's a very skinny, uh, like you can see his rib, and then he has those like uh, swimmer almost swimmer's glasses. Yeah, that's uh, it's a very striking visual. I think. Yeah, and I like. I always I've, I've made this comment before, but there's something about you know not only actors who who know how to act because that's obviously number one priority but that that have just some 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 look interesting that just have like a very interesting face or an interesting stature about them and i think sam lee is one of those actors that is just very interesting to look at yeah definitely and he's gone on to be a, a veteran uh performer now yeah he's done a lot but I, I i can't i don't think i've seen him in anything else I'm, i might have and i just didn't recognize him uh i've seen him quite a few films like beast cops um uh, still human, like he's acted quite a bit with Anthony Wong. Yeah, that's also a Fruit Chan produced movie. Ah, still okay. human. He's not. He's uh not not directed, and it's actually directed by uh, some guy named Oliver Chan. Oh no, which, it's, a, it's a woman. Oh, it's a the director is a woman. Yeah, and I think it was connected oh. to a university project. I actually reviewed it a couple of years ago. Yeah. Well, her name is Oliver Chan. Again, Chan is an insanely common nickname, so I don't know if there's anything in relation to Fruit Chan, but he's definitely a producer in the movie. Yeah. 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 Made in Hong Kong feels like um, it presages a lot of indie films that we see coming out of Hong Kong today. And there's some really great content. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a style that sort of um, that it's it's not necessarily you can't necessarily trace the influence directly. But it looks like it indirectly influenced a lot of even I, I would say even even Western cinema that I've seen since then. Yeah, and um, if you're interested, or for anybody interested in like uh, a film uh, in a uh, dealing with similar subject matter, I'd recommend Mad World, um, which I uh, it's got Eric, I think his name's Eric Tsang, the veteran actor who appeared in like uh, Jackie Chan movies. Uh, he's disappeared quite recently. Um, but uh, it's about this uh, heavy goods vehicle driver who's got a son with a mental illness, and the two are living together in a sort of similar um, subsidized housing project. And uh, it's a really heartbreaking drama. What year is it? 2017, I want to say. Oh, okay. So, yeah, check out Mad World if you are a fan of Made in Hong Kong. Yeah, it looks. I'm looking at the poster. It looks very familiar, and um, I think it it was also like one of the big. Yeah, it, okay. So that's how because I, I check the Hong Kong Film Awards every year, and I remember this. So this one, best new director for that year, 2017. Yeah. So that's that's how I remember it because I check I check it out. I check those like I mentioned before. I check awards listings at least every year, and anything stands out. And so this one was one of the big nominees. It was nominated in every major category. Mm. So yeah, with with all the political changes going on in Hong Kong, like I let, let's hope that the indie scene continues to keep going. I hope so too. All right, so I think this is a 
probably a good closing point for the episode and for the season. Uh, like, thank to the listeners for you know listening to the episodes, and I hope more of a more join us. Uh, we've been a little bit scattered for the last two, so that's why we're ending the season. But that that doesn't mean we won't, like I mentioned in the introduction, that doesn't mean we won't uh, do anything before season three. We'll probably do a few specials. Certainly, we'll do a certainly. I don't want to commit to anything, but hopefully, we'll do a. a a Christmas special again with some sort of topic that we'll haven't decided yet. We might do, you know, if a, one or two more specials in between as we see fit, as something comes up that we want to talk about. We're, we're always in contact. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say, Jason, before we close the season? Uh, yeah, just like to thank everybody who's stuck by us and um, hope you return for the third season. I'd, and I'd like to thank you for these really interesting and uh, enjoyable film conversations. Uh, and yeah, uh, I've enjoyed my time doing this. Absolutely. Likewise. All right. So if you have uh, any questions, comments, a correction, feel free to reach out to us at our website, heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or through our Twitter at Heroic Purgatory, all in one word. Otherwise, that was our episode and that was uh, our season. Uh, well, uh, I'll certainly keep you up to date for when we uh, return with a new episode. 